This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, the Associate Director of Church Society, and today I'm joined by Kirsten Burkett, our Theological Consultant. Kirsty has been doing uh, some work for us uh, recently on the subject of class or class. Uh, depending where you come from and, and how you want to say that, uh, and particularly how that relates to the church in this context. Kirsten is Australian, as you will hear as soon as she begins to speak, um, but she has been in this country for... 17 years. 17 years now. So she's, you know, got some beginner understanding <laughs> of uh, how society works here. I wonder, Kirsty, when you first moved here, were there things that you noticed, particularly related to, to sort of class issues and the class system here in the UK, that were surprising to you or that were just very different from what you'd been used to in Australia? There were all sorts of little things that I would just come across in conversation. I remember speaking to someone and I assumed that he'd been to a public school, but he hadn't. He'd been to a grammar school. And I suddenly realised I had stepped into something. I didn't know what the issue was or why that was a, a topic. But I, I suddenly realised I'd, I'd said the wrong thing. And there, there were all lots of little things like that. I mean, on the surface, uh, I found England looked a lot like Australian culture. I mean, people didn't generally use titles for each other. Um, people would be happy to use first names uh, you know, people didn't wear hats and gloves. It didn't look like sort of traditional <laughs> British society. There were no bowler hats around. And so I assumed it was just the same. Um, but actually one of the stories that I started an article with, one of the little comments that a fellow saying his great-grandfather had to doff his cap to the squire and this fellow still felt full of anger at that. And that really surprised me that there would be that that inherent anger. A lot of what I had read in fiction about the English class society didn't include that sort of feeling. It all it was all lovely. It was all just, you know, pretty pictures of yeah. That's very interesting, isn't it? And I do wonder whether that's partly because a lot of that fiction will have been written by people in the middle classes or in the upper classes rather than people you know who actually are the receiving end of of um that sort of uh you know having to be made to feel subservient or or whatever exactly yes i I think that's very likely the case yeah really interesting i um i'm amused by your noticing that australians uh, and british people don't use titles when i was at oak hill uh, we had Andrew Sheed, who is an Australian mm-hmm. Old Testament lecturer, come and uh, lecture us. And he began his first lecture by saying, well, I don't know how you do things here, but I'm from Australia. And the way we do things there is that you call me Andrew. 
To which the person I was sitting next to immediately responded, well, the way we do things here is that if you're Australian, we call you Skippy. And, um, <laughs> which, which was the sort of common name for David Peterson, our Australian principal at the time, although he did not like it at all. <laughs> he, um, yeah, he, he didn't mm. enjoy that very much. Anyway, so you're right. There is that sort of surface level informality and banter and everything looks fine. But actually, there are some quite deep seated issues that I think people do still feel um, in different ways around the class system. And um, in your second little article, we're putting this series of articles on the blog. There are two that are up already. There are several more in the pipeline. In the second one, you talk about what is well, it's what is the working classes. But I think it's probably applies slightly more generally how how do people assign themselves to any particular class and i was really intrigued by that you you sort of conclude that it's to do with how you feel and i wonder if you could just explain that a bit more often we sort of measure these things maybe think there should be concrete measures of wealth or job or or that sort of thing why is it feeling that you think actually ends up being the most important factor there? Well, there are other factors. There are objective measures that people use. Um, I guess the point is that when people are talking about their own perception of class, there is a lot of feeling involved. So, uh, I mean, I've gone through some of the social divisions. People, I was really interested in the somewhere versus anywhere category that um, David Goodhart uh, came up with a few years ago. Just explain that for us in case people haven't yet read the blog post. Yeah, so he was saying that uh, there are somewhere people, so people who feel that they come from somewhere and they're attached to that place, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Liverpool person or um, I'm a London person. And they will have strong community and family ties to that place don't tend to move around much. Uh, if they do go away to study, they'll come back to the same place or, or try to uh, because they want to live there. Whereas anywhere people tend to think of themselves not so much in terms of where they're from because they feel like they could go anywhere. They could settle down anywhere. It's more um, their choice where they go. The anywhere people tend to be uh, more university educated and he was saying often that's where the anywhere feeling comes from. When you're at university, possibilities open up to you and you feel like you you could move anywhere and and people often do. So that's, um, yeah, that that comes back to a sense of, of feeling that you belong somewhere and you have an identity given to you by the fact that you belong to that place or you feel much more fluid. You're the anywhere person who uh, can move around uh, you you choose your identity. I think it is really fascinating. I find it fascinating, actually, because I feel like I cut right across that division. In many ways, I'm a very typical anywhere person. I am university educated. I have lived in a lot of different places around the UK and even overseas. Where I currently live is literally 10 yards from the house I grew up in. And I have never struggled with the question, where are you from? I know where I am from and it is here. And that is because my family are, many of them, 
farmers. And so we have a very strong intrinsic tie to a specific place and this specific land. And I think there is something about that that I think you see in what I would think of as, as different kind of class situations within the UK, people whose identity is associated with a place, but in very different ways, perhaps, of that being expressed. Oh, that's true. Yes, I'm sure feeling directly connected with the land as a farmer would, that would give a very strong sense of place um, like that, yeah. But I do think it's, uh, as a general observation, I think it's a really interesting one and it links to a number of things, doesn't it? So if you feel a very strong connection with a particular uh, place and community and that's where your extended family are, that's a good thing in a lot of ways, but it can also be a restrictive thing in terms mm-hmm. of education or employment or opportunities beyond that. And and so I think maybe some of those are, are what he's getting at as well with the the somewhere, anywhere distinction. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Because another kind of distinction that I talk about is is the idea of capital, social and cultural capital. So uh, having more money, that's economic capital, and obviously that makes a difference to people. But even if you have a lot of money, if you don't feel like you fit into a certain society, then you don't benefit from it. Um, so social capital is the, the social relationships you have, the connections you have with people. And then cultural capital is uh, what we think of as cultural, the kind of music you like, the kind of shows you go to. And people will judge each other depending on what, where they fit in to that scheme. And uh, uh, one of the interesting things I found is that uh, part of the analysis is that Working class people have traditionally not have much economic capital, but they had huge amounts of social capital, precisely because they had such strong family connections. And so you could get a job because your dad could put a good word in with the foreman. Uh, so even though you'd had no economic capital in the terms of the training you could get and that sort of thing, you'd have social capital. But a lot of those, that sort of social capital, um, analysts say, is now breaking down. Um, as communities become more fragmented um, and as people just can't afford to live in the place where they grew up. Uh, you know, they, they can no longer buy houses close to where their parents are and, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, that, that's another way of thinking about how people fit into society as a sort of capital that they have. Yes, and actually that sort of, that example that you give of being able to put in a good word for someone at work, we now have quite a lot of sort of, uh, human resources legislation that that kind of mitigates against that in some ways but we do mm. see it still at work um at the at the other end of the the social stream with you know people nominating their children for internships or apprenticeships or or whatever in quite high powered positions to give them a leg up at that end uh, of the work stream as well so social caps are really interesting because it can work in so many ways, in so many different parts of our society. But actually, Mm. it's not a great thing for social mobility, perhaps, Mm. because it works within your your existing sphere, usually. Well, a lot of these things work against social mobility. Um, Yeah. 
And it is interesting how values clash. You know, I was, I was just thinking the, the anywhere people are the ones who can and do feel like they can travel and live anywhere. But they're probably the same ones who are environmentally conscious and think we should travel less and you know use fewer air miles and that sort of thing. So yeah, yes. we're all a, a mess of contradicting impulses, uh, no doubt. Um, why yeah. is this something that we should care about as Christians? So it's interesting to look at society and see how it operates and see how people have different experiences and different uh, understandings of who they are within that. Why should that matter to us, particularly as Christians? I think uh, a large part of that is um, uh, what I failed to do just now, and that is answer your first question um, about how a lot about class is about how you feel. Uh, it's not necessarily objectively what, what job you have or where you live or even how much money you have. It's how you feel about yourself. And typically that's something that's established in the way you grew up. So someone can be a university-educated, um, London-dwelling, well-travelled person and still feel working class because that's where they grew up. And if that's how you feel then you will feel excluded by people who don't share those class assumptions and may well be excluded because people are tribal. Human beings are inherently tribal and in all sorts of ways we will exclude people who are not like us. And if you feel like you've always been on the sort of lower end of that, on the receiving end of that, part of what you feel is angry and resentful. And this is something that Christians should care about. One, because we're prone to it ourselves, both to judging people and to feeling resentful if we feel like we've been judged. And these are things that we need to work out between ourselves because we should not be judging each other on, on these sorts of um, things that don't matter. Um, but they do matter to people. And so we should care about them. And we should be working not to have churches that make people feel excluded. And sadly, it seems at the moment we do have churches from which people feel excluded because they feel like it's for people who are not like them. Yes. I mean, the gospel is radically inclusive, to coin a phrase. Um, mm -hmm. It is for people of every tribe and tongue and uh, nation and so on. And it is for people of every class. Indeed, one might say that through the Bible, there is a predisposition to prefer those of lower social status. Um, you know, when Paul writes to Corinthians, not many of you um, were wise by the world's standards. Not many of you were uh, wealthy or influential or whatever. You know, there's, there's a an overwhelming sense of God has a great heart for those who are poor and marginalised and outcast and excluded mm -hmm. um in our society and so our churches ought never to be places um that feel exclusive that that participate in that sort of way that society can feel like it's exclusive we ought to be the places of that radical welcome and inclusion um mm. and yet so often we aren't i mean i was very struck by statistic um that you put in your latest post around 
I think 81%, something like that, of people in our churches have university degrees compared to 27% of the general population. Yes, evangelical churches are overwhelmingly middle class. Yeah, astonishingly so. I mean, that is quite extraordinary, isn't it? That, that I mean, as a sort of base starting point, would you say that what we ought to be aiming for is to be representative of our community? So if our community has, you know, a certain percentage of people from ethnic minorities, that ought to be something we're aiming to represent in our church family or, you know, a certain proportion of people... Um, you know, in in a particular social class, however we define that, that ought to be right. You know, so broadly speaking, Mm. we ought to have churches that look like the community around us. Does that seem like a reasonable thing for us to be aiming for? Oh, it does seem reasonable. I mean, at least on a national level, you should be able to look at the statistics and say, yes, that's that's roughly the composition of our churches. yeah, I mean, there can be all sorts of local variations. But, yes, it, it is. there is something going wrong when we are so unbalanced. Church Society is inviting you to join us for 60 days of prayer for the church, beginning on Ash Wednesday and going all the way through to the end of the GAFCON conference in Kigali, on April the 21st, we'll be posting daily collects taken from the Book of Common Prayer, but in modern English, along with brief explanations and applications to the contemporary church. A wide range of voices from the Global Anglican Communion are contributing to this series, and we hope it will be a powerful time of praying for the Church of England and the wider church beyond. Join us on the Church Society website, beginning this Wednesday, for 60 days of prayer for the church. I mean, I'm not asking you uh, in the next 10 minutes to to be able to solve that for us, Um, but I wonder if we could talk about some of the possible things we ought to be thinking about doing that. And one question that often comes up is around Mm -hmm. ministry. We don't seem to be raising many working class people to become ordained ministers who would presumably be, in many ways, the most effective people to then go minister in working class parts of the country. Are there things that you can see about the system by which we are... um, identifying vocations and getting people selected and then training people for ministry that are making that disproportionately middle class? Uh, There could be. Uh, I suspect a lot of the places where you have the biggest, most active evangelical ministries are in places like universities or university towns. And so naturally they're going to identify university people to be going forward for ministry. Uh, you probably, um, part of the uh, the feelings that I've read about that working class people typically identify with do mitigate against leadership, against standing out, against putting your head above the parapet. 
And so you'll probably have to work harder both to identify and to encourage people, uh, working class people, to, to go forward for ministry. Uh, there's also the fact that there are um, educational disadvantages in a lot of parts of the world or of England, uh, depending on your class. Uh, you just don't learn the same skills at school as people of a higher class do because you just haven't been at schools which have as many resources or mm. that sort of thing. And that's that's not just about private schools, state schools. If you're in a wealthy area, um, the state schools are generally very much better mm. than if you're in a deprived inner city area where the state schools are having to deal with a lot of non-educational issues and the resources, therefore, for for teaching yeah. are just not the same. And, I, um, yeah, I'm no expert on school education. I don't know what the solutions are for that, but it is a fact you'll... Um, yeah, a lot of people coming from schools in the poorer areas are going to struggle more. Yes, Yeah. yes. And people with money can you know, literally and literally do buy property to be in the catchment area of particular schools. Yeah. If you don't have the money to do that, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of things that um, perpetuate mm-hmm. that kind of system. What about, um, so, I mean, I really take your point about identifying and selecting. I remember talking to somebody uh, once after we'd heard a presentation about getting lay people more involved in church and and the person had been saying you know if you've got people who are HR managers in their workplace get them to help you with this or if there are people who you know run this kind of thing in their workplace and she just says to me Ros we don't have people who are managers Mm -hmm. in our congregation we have people who are told what to do in their workplace and you know they don't have that um, understanding of themselves as a leader in any way and they don't have experience of being a leader in any way and that's not so they couldn't be but you're starting a whole lot further back in helping them to develop those skills or see that they have those skills mm. than if you've got a congregation full of people who are already used to telling people what to do and organizing systems and and whatever so it's just it's a yeah, it's a different place that you're starting from. Yeah. What about in the process of training for ministry? I mean, we sometimes hear this, and we, we did a Crossway uh, article about this uh, a few years ago, where it can feel like what we're asking people to do is is be very intellectual in the way that we're preparing them for ministry, in a way that perhaps doesn't necessarily reflect what the Bible um demands of ministers do you have thoughts on that I mean obviously you've been involved in theological education for for many years yeah I'm very much a fan of theological education and I don't think we should be looking at having less theological education especially these days I think ministers need their training more than ever now and they need uh, wide-ranging comprehensive training that takes time Um, it doesn't have to be uh, in, for instance, a university setting. There are other ways of doing it, but it still has to be good training. I mean, Jesus taught informally, but he still taught, and he taught intensively. Uh, so we're, yes, we're not, uh, I think it's not a matter of saying we want lesser or lower quality training. There are different ways 
of conducting education and there are different ways of preparing people for education, of, of making explicit what it is we're actually asking of people um, and working out exactly what are the skills that we want people to acquire. So you don't necessarily need the skill of writing an essay in ministry. You do need the skill of being able to take a question and think about it theologically and working out, well, what are the different parts to this question that I need to answer? So it's, yeah, I think we certainly could, um, you know, and people in theological education do this all the time, work out exactly what do we need to prioritise and what is actually the skill that we're trying to impart. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think even just that reframing how we do the assessment Mm -hmm. so that it's something which tests a really valuable skill for ministry rather than something like writing an essay, which most of us, once we're outside of theological education, never, ever have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it's not just skills, is it? It's obviously theological content and and bible knowledge and um you know pastoral uh care and having thought through those things so it's it's a combination of of learning things yeah and learning skills um and recognizing that within the church of england certainly training continues through the next few years of curacy yeah um and thinking about well what what actually will you better learn perhaps in that more apprentice-like situation mm. um, and what's better in the in the kind of college years. Yeah, I think a um, lot of people don't really appreciate what curacy is meant to be. It is, it's training. It's the second part of your training. It's, it's not when you go and um, start the career, so to speak. So, yeah, and it is important because you need to, to be learning practically, seeing how things apply and and having a mentor who will talk things through with you and talk with you about well why did that work why didn't that work so yeah both half of the training the the more formal part and the practical part are, are both very important mm. what about um thinking about local churches and um how well we are doing at representing and reaching our whole communities. We talked about how the evangelical church is, is church is overwhelmingly middle class and there are clearly historic reasons why that has been the case. Mm-hmm. Successful um, evangelistic work in universities and in public schools in the 20th century really, I mean, you know, in many ways grew the evangelical church wonderfully although not without some issues as we are learning mm-hmm. um but therefore we've ended up with a, a very skewed church because with, there weren't really similar things happening outside of those spheres that were having that same impact um amongst uh working class people so we're in we're in the situation that we're in and obviously there will be a lot of difference uh, locally not all churches will will be very middle class but if you're in a church that you're thinking I don't know that we're doing a really good job of of reaching and, and representing our community here what would be some 
advice that you might give about ways to think about that, ways to go about changing that? What what can we do? Some of the suggestions I've come across are, well, first, think about the social action programs that a lot of churches run, uh, and they come under a lot of criticism from working class Christians saying uh, what middle class churches will put on these big social action programs, which are, which, you know, which are great. Of course, we do need to care for people who are struggling. Um, but then they stop there. And so some of the suggestions are is, uh, to put it crudely, feed fewer people, but get to know them better. So don't be content just with having a soup kitchen that doles out lots of lunches. Make sure you've got that everyone who comes, someone's talking to them and getting to know them, having a conversation uh, and put resources into the relationships, not just in doing the social action things, which may make your conscience feel good, but they're not actually serving people in the best way possible, which is explaining the gospel to them. Um, or if there already are social action um, programs going on that maybe you can partner with, put uh, people forward or put yourself forward to be there to chat to people as they come in, uh, to do that relationship work because that's, that, that's what we really want. And that's how we make people feel more welcome, that we're not just providing you with a service but don't come in. It's, no, we want to know you, but we, we want to have a relationship with you. So, yes, yeah, so there's some of the sorts of things that people have, have talked about. I mean, there's also the fact that, I mean, as, as you just alluded to, part of the reason that we've got such um, big middle-class churches is because huge amounts of resources and effort were put into evangelising the middle classes in the 20th century. And you put that much resources and effort into something, it's going to pay off. We need to put that sort of work and effort into evangelising the working classes. It's going to be costly and it will not bring back a financial return. These churches won't be paying for themselves, at least not in the short term. But that's that's mission for you. You've got to put resources into mission. And I think we perhaps also, therefore... Uh, not just resources in terms of money and people, but also in terms of our our thinking and our strategizing. So, the the sort of great middle class evangelism projects that happened in the twentieth century were were quite strategic. They were a result of people sitting down thinking, "What will work? How will we reach these people?" And mm-hmm. then going about that. It's not going to be the same strategy. Um, or I would be very surprised if it would be the same strategy. I just don't think we've done a lot of thinking as evangelicals actually about what will be the best ways for us to do mission yeah, amongst working class people as they exist now. And you think great working class missions that happened in the past, you know, as, as sort of George Whitfield or, you know, J.C. Ra when he was bishop in Liverpool and, and thinking about how to reach the working class then. We're, things are different in the 20, 21st century than they were in the 19th and the, the 18th century. Yeah. But we do need people, and, you know, there are some people who are beginning to do this work of really thinking seriously, if the 21st century is going to be a century of mission to the working classes, how are we going to do that and where will we focus all of yeah. those resources um, mm. to, to give this a serious um, push? 
Well, that's right. And and we do need to be listening to those working class ministers who have um, been converted and are now doing the work. And they're the ones who will, will know their communities and know. And a lot of the suggestions that seem to be coming forward are about being there, actually moving to a place where middle class people typically don't want to live, but actually moving there, being there, um, being part of the community. Yeah, and also, I mean, top tip, if you're a, a clergy person thinking about this, you're, oh, I don't know, would I like to move there? They're really cheap places to live usually, <laughs> so your stipend will go a lot further. Um, depending where you are, there may be great schools, you know, it's not necessarily saying my children are going to have to go to the Sink Estate School, but also even if they do, those schools are generally in turnaround situations and they'll be fine. You know, the Lord loves your children anyway. It'll be yeah. fine. Um, you know, don't be don't be scared of that. Um, and I mean, my top tip would be go and see if you can find somebody who is ministering in that sort of situation and say, can I just come and visit for a week and and see what you do and see what it's like living where you live and how your church works and whether this might be something that the Lord is calling me to um, and, and actually do that by meeting people um, yeah rather than just thinking about it great well i'm really looking forward to the rest of your uh series we've got uh all sorts of things I, i'm particularly interested in number five in defense of the middle class question <laughs> mark um to see whether the lord loves us too i, th- I think he probably does um but uh it's been really helpful just to uh hear some of those thoughts uh this week and the podcast Kirsten and uh, as I say we'll look forward to reading more of that and hopefully this is the beginning of a conversation about some of those issues uh, that we've talked about how to be better churches at including and welcoming and reaching out to um, what is still the largest sector of our society um, that we are not doing a good job with at the moment very often so thank you very much Thank you. And thank you for listening. And um, we will be back again next week uh, to talk about something entirely different, the Global Anglican Communion, something which has been a little bit uh, in the news recently. Uh, If you don't know what it is or why it matters or what an instrument of communion might be, Andrew Atherston will be here to explain all of those things and many more. So do join us again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm -hmm.